Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Have you ever noticed, and I think I've noticed it more as I've watched our, our kids raise our grandkids, but have you ever noticed that some people never say thank you? I bring it up because I do notice how they teach the kids to say thank you. And it does sound really good when a little kid asks for something and says thank you. I think what good parents they've got. But you know there are people that never say thank you. I've always found that kind of, kind of curious that people would be like that. I want us to look at a story, Luke 17, that you can immerse yourself in, and it's all about gratitude. It's all about gratitude. This is a story that I want you to try and enter into. I want you to be present. I want you to be there on that day, at that event. Luke 17, beginning about verse 11, is where we'll be. Now, this is a story that has believable characters, although most of them, we don't know their names, but they're very believable. It has some social tension to it. And then there is a key crucial detail that is kept from us until the very end of the story. An odd place to put such an important detail, but it's held back from us until the end of the story. Now, if you're a Bible reader at all, this is a story familiar to you. And I bring it to you because, again, we're in a season of thanks, a season of gratitude. The holiday is just around the corner for us. So I want us to turn to a case where someone has great reason to be grateful and demonstrates their gratitude in a tangible way. And it is in great contrast to some other people who also have great reason to be grateful but don't show any gratitude at all. And so you know how it works. It shines brightest in the darkness, and so we see this gratitude with great clarity here. Again, it's a story you probably know. Jesus is leaving one town, headed to another, so he's in a little bit of an in-between area when he is approached from some distance by a group of men. All of these men are afflicted with leprosy. That means that they had jolly well better keep their distance because the law, both civil and religious, demanded that if you were a leper, if you had this horrible disfiguring disease, you were not around the rest of us. You weren't allowed. There was no place for you with the rest of people. You had to live out somewhere. And you were not allowed to have any kind of social interaction with anybody else. You were a leper. You were despised. You were feared, and you were hated because of your disease. You had to keep within at least a hundred paces of anybody that you ran into. Now, I tried it earlier this week, a hundred paces. I did it in here. It was almost four times back and forth, back and forth. That's how far away you had to stay from everybody. Long distance. And this group of ten lepers approaches Jesus. 
And as they get closer to him, I'm assuming no closer than 100 paces, because the law said if they got closer, they would be subject to being taken, thrown in a pit, and stoned to death. And so they're careful not to get closer than that, and they shout out at Jesus, and they ask for his mercy. They don't ask for healing. They ask for his mercy. Whatever that meant and whatever they meant by it, we need your mercy. And so Jesus says to them, tell you what I'll do. I'll give you some instruction. I want you to turn around, head back to the bigger city, and there I want you to find the priest, and I want you to present yourself to them as if you have been healed. They weren't. They're still disfigured. Now, when we talk about leprosy, it's hard for us to envision just how desperate their circumstance was. There were a number of different skin diseases that are lumped under the category of leprosy. And it was a plague in the ancient days. But it sounds like from the description that Dr. Luke gives, and he's a little more specific, being a medical man, he's a little more specific in the original language of what these fellows were facing. They were probably the victims of what we today call Hansen's disease, common leprosy. Now, Hansen's is a horrible disease because it attacks the central nervous system. And it destroys your sense of feeling. Part of the problem with leprosy is your skin degenerates, but it degenerates faster because you can't feel anything. It is a painless disease. Now, lest you think that's the one I want, what happens because you have no sense of touch is you do things that you would never do otherwise. You pick up things way too hot. You grip the shovel way too tight. You have no sense of proportion with what you're doing. You wash your face in a way that is no longer helpful but destructive. And everything you do because you cannot feel is ruining your skin, along with a degenerative disease. And what happens in Hansen's disease, what these 10 have is, you end up a disfigured mess. You end up a monster. The eyelids fall off. The nose falls off. The ears, the extremities, fingers, toes fall off. Chunks of skin begin to get pus-covered and ooze all the time, and then they just melt away. And you become a walking gargoyle. So one of the reasons that you weren't allowed it around anybody is they feared it would be contagious, but also you looked like a monster. And so you were not welcome around anybody. So these hideous deformities approach him en masse, and they're calling for mercy. And Jesus says, I want you to turn around, go find the priest in the temple, and present yourself as if you have been healed of leprosy. Now in the Hebrew Scriptures, when you contracted leprosy, it was often seen as an act of God. And when it was taken away, when it was in remission, that was God acting too. And so it became then the business of the priest to determine, do you have it or are you cured? And so they turn around and they begin to follow his direction back toward the city. Now this is one of those cases where I wish we had video. 
We don't know exactly what happened, but the way Luke describes it, it seems that as they're walking along, something like this is not too much to imagine. That they're walking along, they're talking, and they picked up their pace. It sounds ludicrous on the surface that Jesus has said, go and present yourself to the priest as if you're healed when you're not healed. But they're walking along trying to to demystify what it is they're doing and thinking too about what happens if they get to that city gate and they are not healed, the consequences are going to be great. So they're walking along and it perhaps unfolded like this. A guy looks over at his companion and the stubs that used to be his fingers, they begin to move. And fingers begin to form. He doesn't notice it because he can't feel it. But the other guy sees it. And maybe before his eyes, the nose begins to form. The eyelids come back into place and the ears that have dropped off and left holes on the side of his skull, they've reformed. And the flesh over his face that is pussy and bloody, it begins to smooth out. And then he notices that the same thing is happening to him and to all of the others around him. And and when they begin to understand what has taken place as they've walked along in obedience to Christ's command, they begin to leap and jump. They're ecstatic with what's taken place. Because this means that now they are no longer considered dead. You see, if they are a practicing Jew, their family has had a funeral for them already while they've lived. Because they're a walking corpse. And to their family, they died long ago. But now they're back to life. And they can go back to their families, their loved ones, back to their careers. They can go back into their homes and back into society again. They don't have to live on the ash heap. They don't have to be an outcast. They don't have to be pointed at. They don't have to be feared. They can be human again. And they're thrilled to their core. And they jump as high as they can and begin to run as fast as they can into that city so the verification can take place and they can live again. But one of them, as he's running, stops short and 180's back to Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, now whole, not deformed, he falls at the feet of Christ and maybe he even grabs his feet, his ankles, And he says over and over again, not in a shy way, not in a small voice, but a large voice, his outdoor voice, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the gratitude of his heart overflows in how he behaves and how he reacts and what he wants people around Jesus to know that Jesus has done for him. He's healed. And he says thank you. Well, now that's the story. And we know that story. The healing has taken place. And the healing, you notice, is different this time. It didn't take place at Jesus' touch. He never touched them. It didn't take place at His Word, be healed. But it took place as they obey what He says. As they're obeying what He says, they're healed on the way. Now stop and think about that. 
Stop and think about that. Stop and ask yourself exactly what's happening here because, uh, again, on the surface, this looks ludicrous. This looks ridiculous. Why go and verify a cleansing that has not taken place? But the story is a story within a story. And the story within the story is this, that it was their faith, their faith, their raw faith, their belief in doing what Jesus said to do, and their faith is shown in their actions, which brought the healing into their lives. It's telling us that this powerful thing called faith isn't faith really until you do something. Until then, it's just feelings. Until then, you can call it faith, but it's just good intentions. It's not really faith until you do something, you see. Now, we're meant in this story to focus on the one. Because as that one comes back and falls at the feet of Christ, Jesus is a little bit taken back. He's a little bit amazed. And he says, where are the other nine? Didn't I heal nine? And then he notices, maybe it's an article of clothing, maybe the man tells him, this man is a Samaritan that's come back. And that's the detail that shows up at the end of the story that flips the whole story. We're meant to focus on that one who happens to be a Samaritan who turns back. And what that's telling us is that gratitude from our heart for what God has done for us is always right. In this spirit and season of thanksgiving, we need to understand that gratitude is always right. Look at the amazement in Jesus. Look at the amazement in his words. Where are the other nine? I healed nine others. Why aren't they coming back to express their gratitude? Because their healing was as great as this man's. So there is disappointment in his words, but there's amazement in his words. Where are the others that I healed just as well? In other words, he's saying what this man is doing is right. It is morally right to come back and do and express gratitude like this man is. Gratitude is just the right thing to do. But gratitude is also costly. You see, this man is walking toward a goal. He's headed back home. He's now whole and healed, and he's going to enter back into his family and into his life. He's alive again. That's his agenda until he remembers, I've got to say thank you. And he interrupts the flow of his life. It costs him some time now. But that's the way real faith is. It will cost us. We talk about a thing called cheap grace. Cheap grace. That's where people take what God is doing for them and have no change in their life, express no gratitude really, they're glad to take the blessings and the goodness of God, but they don't want to return anything in return. And they for sure do not want to have any kind of meaningful change in their life, even though Jesus has come in and done some pretty fantastic things. You know, the greatest hurdle is that we've got to be willing to let Him change us. 
There is change that will come after a blessing of God. There is change that will come into a life after Jesus comes in and begins to live His life in us. There will be a great change when the God of the universe takes up residence in our life. And that's what a life with Christ is all about. That's why the Word talks about being in Christ and Christ being in you. He's living His life in us. He's living His life as us. And you would expect if the God of the universe comes into our lives, there would be great change and there should be. But in the case of many who profess a faith in Christ, they will tell you they have that. There is no evidence in their life. And that's because they don't want to change. The greatest obstacle, the greatest hurdle for us is we must be willing to let God do the change in us. You see, somebody said a long time ago, God loves you, that's for sure, but He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He wants to change some things, and that will always be costly. And when this man returns to express his gratitude, and when we express our gratitude, when we thank God for the great things He's done in our life, that's going to cost us something. It will cost us time like it did this man. He had to turn back. He, he, was, he will have to change directions, and we'll have to change direction in our life if we adopt a life of gratitude and we begin to be thankful for the things that God has done for us, it will change the direction and the trajectory of how we spend our time too. We will have to change. We'll have to make time for that. That's why it says he turned around. That's the word repent. It means to change directions. And when we begin to be people that are grateful, verbally grateful, with our lives grateful, we express our gratitude to Christ for the great things He's done for us, that will cause some direction change in our life. Gratitude is right. Gratitude is costly. But gratitude has the possibility of making you look like a mystery to other people. Think about this man kneeling at the feet of Christ, saying in a loud voice, loud enough that a crowd would be attracted, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think the volume probably matched his sense of gratitude. So he's loud. And people are looking at this man, not a deformed man, but a whole man. Not a, not a hideous monster of a human, but a whole human with fine skin, and everything is accounted for. There are no parts missing. He's not a deformed-looking creature, but he's a whole man who is now kneeling. And people looking on could have said, based on the volume of his gratitude, and the way he's gripping Jesus' feet, and he's groveling before him, and he's prostrated himself on the ground before Christ. People could have looked at that whole man and said, what a fanatic. He's out of his mind. He's carried his religion too far. How unhealthy, how psychologically unhealthy for him, for his self-esteem, to bow before another person like that. People might have said that, 
And people might say that about us when we express our gratitude in a lot of different ways to the Lord for what He's done for us in in how we pray, in how we spend our time, in how we spend our money, in how we think, in the things we do and the things we occupy ourselves with. People may look on and say, you're a fanatic, but they don't know the whole story, do they? They looked at this whole man who was kneeling before Christ And they were saying he's a fanatic, he's not psychologically healthy to be doing this, but they don't know the story. They don't know the miracle. They don't know what he was and where he came from. They don't know anything about the desperation in his life when he approached Christ and in mass they said, have mercy! They don't know that because now he's whole. And they don't know the contrast with the other nine. They don't know that he's the only one expressing gratitude, not only for himself, but for all them as well. And they for sure don't know who Christ is, who's done it. And so when you become a person expressing gratitude, other people may not understand. It may be a mystery to them why you behave the way you do. And your life has become an expression of thanks and gratitude to the Lord. They don't get it because they don't get it. Now from the key detail that is held back from us until the story has nearly finished, after the healing is in the bag, it's revealed, and this guy was a Samaritan. That causes us to reason that the other nine We're Jews. But this one who's come back, it's more amazing that he expresses gratitude because he is a Samaritan. Hard for us to understand what that meant in that day. Like a lot of prejudices, this one goes back a long way. Centuries. Back to the time when the people of Israel were taken away from their homeland and, and forced march to the land of Babylon in exile. A few were left behind to take care of a few things. And as time went on, they intermarried with the other people around them. And when the Jewish people were brought back into their homeland, these people that had intermarried, they now called themselves Samaritans because of where they came from. But they were considered half-breeds. They weren't full members of the family anymore. They had disgraced themselves by intermarrying with these other people, and they had compromised themselves, and so they were no longer welcome. Now it depends on who tells the story. The Samaritans or the Jews, who was it that first brought that animosity into the relationship? We don't know, but before long, one thing led to another thing. And one action led to a reaction. And pretty soon, you couldn't do anything right on either side toward the other. And a wall of animosity sprung up and prejudice and bigotry and racism. And it was ugly. And just a few years before Jesus tells this story, things were in help when some Samaritan boys, to get back for an offense from the Jewish boys, had slaughtered a pig and thrown its entrails and its blood and guts into the temple in Jerusalem. That was the worst. And it only added fuel to an already existing fire. 
And the hatred between Jews and Samaritans was great. In fact, in another place, the Bible said they had no dealings with each other. There was nothing, they had nothing that they did with one another except sneer and hate. And, and there were as many degrees of separation between a Samaritan and a first century Jew as there would be between the president of Black Lives Matter and the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. They had nothing to do with each other. Now there's a second sad truth. Sadly, those that were expected to express their gratitude, where are the other nine? They were absent. They had done what so many do even in our day, blessed by God. They grab what God gives and run with it. Never give a second thought to expressing gratitude. And so this Samaritan is on the scene and he is the focus, this late in the story detail. It means something very significant. You know what it means? It means that this story is not the story of a healing. That the story is not the activities that took place surrounding Jesus. But this late breaking news that a Samaritan was among the healed, it means that anybody, anybody can be blessed by God. That what Jesus wants to do is open to anybody, anybody, and anybody can express gratitude. So gratitude is right and gratitude is costly. Gratitude will make you a mystery to other people, but one final thing, gratitude is, is the right response of a rational mind. I mean, look at it. Think of it. What did he ask for Jesus to do? He just asked from Jesus, mercy, mercy. Jesus sent them away with an indication of what he would do, no guarantee, but if you do this, something merciful will happen. He sent them away with, with no indication of what he would do. No promise of healing was spoken. No touch of healing was given. The, the promise of healing and the word of healing, that will come after. <laughs> the man comes back to say thank you. The, these, these people that approach him, they are obedient to what He says to do. And their encounter with Jesus, they're healed. And this one man is the lone rational one in the bunch when he connects what Jesus has done with His healing. I've got new skin now. And it's because He showed mercy. And so the rational response is to turn around and do what He does, the sensible thing. He runs back and He falls at His feet to say, thank you! That just makes good sense, doesn't it? To continually thank God for the good things that come into our life. To, to get in the habit of living a life of gratitude where... If it comes to our mind, we say, thank you. If it happens in the moment, thank you. 
If a kind word is spoken or we suddenly realize what a, what a tremendous thing it is to be a part of a family or to be able to sit down at a table and eat food or to have clean sheets to sleep in or to have friends that we can trust, at that moment we say thank you. We, we develop a life and a lifestyle of gratitude and thanksgiving. That just seems to make sense, doesn't it? I asked the Lord, to, as I was wrapping up this message, thinking about it the other day, I said, God, I want you to give me a real-life example. And this morning I was sitting at my desk looking at these notes, and I looked on the wall, and there's a picture. It's a picture by the poet-artist William Blake who was a thoroughgoing lover of Christ. He painted the most amazing pictures. And he, he painted a picture of how he imagined it might have looked when God created. And he took as his cue that moment in the book of Job when Job talks about how the Lord inscribed on the circle of the deep this great chaos he took an instrument and he scribed a big circle like a compass would do, and that becomes the world. He brought order out of chaos, and, and so Blake paints that moment with God bent over. He portrays him as a great man, and he's bent over, and he's inscribing a circle on the face of the deep with his fingers, and that becomes the world. A friend sent me that picture by accident a long time ago. I have a good friend, and we do not communicate via Facebook or email. We decided a long time ago it will just be letters. I haven't seen him for 30 years. He lives in another country. His language that he speaks is different than mine. He knows English very well, very well-educated guy, and we letters is how we do it. But he got in the habit a long, long time ago, he thought it was funny, to never send me a letter unless it had something already on the back of it. It was already a used piece of paper. So I've got a collection of handbills and advertisements and homework papers and all kinds of stuff from him. But on the other side is his letter. He sent me a letter a long time ago, and on the back was this picture of God scribing a circle. I've looked at that a million times, and it's blessed my heart a million times over. There have been countless people, pagans, sit in my office, and they look over at it and say, what's that? Glad you asked that. So it's been a blessing to a lot of people. So I sat down and I wrote Wally a note. I'm going to mail it to him. Thanks for the picture. When it happens in the moment, be grateful. God, thank you. When you reflect on it moments later, years later, decades later, thank you. Develop a heart of gratitude. This story about these disfigured people has been with me all week and it's kind of weighed heavy on me. And I don't want to end up by sounding like a scold saying, now go home and be grateful. So let me end with this story of the atheist walking through the woods. 
admiring all of the things that he chuckled to himself were just accidents. Just accidents. But he was admiring them and their complexity and how it's all interrelated. He was looking at the trees and all of the rest of it, admiring the accidents. When he looked behind him to see a bear, a big one, not a circus bear, a grizzly bear. And the bear was bearing down on him. And so he thought, wisdom, I will run. And he ran like he had never run before, but the bear was faster. And the bear was gaining every step, and he can feel its hot breath on his neck. And he runs a little bit further, and he decides to throw himself on the ground and make a ball of himself, and maybe it'll leave him alone. And he does, but it doesn't leave him alone. It leaps on top of him and pulls back its right paw to strike him. When the guy cries out, oh, God, help me, atheist, and everything froze. The bear's hand froze. The river flowing by stopped. The leaves weren't moving anymore. It was still. And a piercing light comes through the trees and a voice that says, after all these years of denying me, you want me to help you now? And the atheist says, yes. He says, the voice, so am I to consider you now a believer? And the atheist thinks and says, if I say I'm a believer now after all these years, what a hypocrite I'll be. I'll just be saving it to save my own dirty neck. So he says, God, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So no, I am not a believer. But could you help me out by making the bear a Christian? And God says, sure. The light snaps shut. The water starts flowing. The leaves start moving. The bear is animated again. The bear backs up, kneels down, folds his hands, and says, Lord, for the food I'm about to receive, I thank you. I thank you. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.